I think because I was so rooted in my collaborate heritage through music and through art, but at the same time, I would be treated differently. Like I wasn't from Malaysia, right? Until today, people are so shocked that I'm Malaysian. Like oh. people in Malaysia are shocked that I'm Malaysian. They're like, oh, where are you from? I'm like, oh, I'm Malaysian. Are you sure? Are you sure? When people are so shocked that I speak Bahasa. Uh, so yeah, I still get that. So actually, I was really looking forward to leaving Kuching. I mean, number one, I think a lot of us were looking forward to leaving Kuching because it, it was a bit small. But also, I was looking forward to going to England because that's where part of my heritage is from. And I was like, ah, oh, maybe finally I can fit in over there. But no, people in England thought I was Asian. I mean, I am. But they would call me Asian and wouldn't see me as British. Whereas people in Malaysia wouldn't see me as Malaysian. So yeah, it was quite hard, like my late teens and early 20s. But I think end of the day, I just found that I resonated with Malaysia or Sarawak most. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 22 of the So This Is My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya, and today's guest is Elena Muran, a Sarawakian Safai player, singer, teacher, speaker, social entrepreneur, visual artist, and heritage advocate. The snippet you heard earlier is from a song called Midang Midang, an old collaborate song handed to Elena by her grand-auntie Tefu Ira, and a song we also talk about in today's interview. Elena is half collaborate diet on her father's side and half English-Italian on her mother's side. She shares what it was like growing up in Kuching, Sarawak, where she was first exposed to her cultural dances and the sape as well as how she transitioned from a corporate consulting job to studying fine arts before eventually entering into the world music scene full-time. Elena's music and work is very closely tied to her heritage, where everything has a backstory and deeper meaning. The words spoken, the beats used, and outfits worn, many of which are passed on from generation to generation. If you want to learn more about what it's like being part of Bonus indigenous communities, and how you can support world musicians like Elena. Listen on to find out. Are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. Hi, Elena. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast today. Thanks for having me. So, we both grew up in Sarawak, Kuching, but I get the sense that your childhood was very, very different from mine. And I would love for you to share what your childhood was like from your memory growing up there. Oh, I love Kuching. It still is, I think, a great place to grow up. So a bit about my background. My father is Kalabit, which is one of the tribes in Sarawak. And my mother, she's half English, half Italian, and she's an anthropologist and an English teacher. So they both met in Sarawak. And I think with both their backgrounds, they gave my brother and I a really, really rich experience. As I was older, I realized that, hey, like not every kid had a similar experience as I did. So for example, like at the weekends, we would go to the beach, we would go hiking, we would go to villages. Um, my mum was doing research as well on old rituals, on basket weaving, she was doing research on natural dyes. So we would spend weekends kind of delving into her research. I remember as a teenager, I got a bit 
frustrated because I wanted to just go to the cinema with my friends or go to McDonald's with my friends. But no, I had to go for a hike, for example. <laughs> but now I, I love the jungle. Yeah, it was so funny when I was doing research and I read that you were going for hikes. I think you stayed in one of the longhouses to look for wild orangutans. And it's so different from my own experience. Was your mom actively encouraging you guys to do this? Did you feel as though you wanted to rebel greatly? Or was it you just went with the flow because it was very interesting? <laughs> as kids, we loved it. I mean, that was the life that we knew, right? Going to look for wild orangutans was in Batang Ai. But not in the resort area. We stayed with the kampong people. And back then as well, I remember my mom, she had a job to train the tour guides how to speak English and how to host tourists. So we would like follow her along on those trips. So I think it was as a teenager, I just wanted to rebel a bit and hang with my friends at the weekend at the one or two malls that we had in Kuche. Very few. <laughs> So were you very much in touch with the Kalabit site? I think some of them were living in longhouses as well, right? Still are as well. Yeah, so our people actually come from Miri. So if you can picture Brunei on a map, it's south of Brunei, right at the Malaysian-Indonesian border. That's the Kalabit Highlands. But my dad moved to Kuching, which is about an hour's flight from Miri. We had a lot of aunties and uncles and cousins that also lived in Kuching. So at the weekends, I think since I was six years old, my mom and the other aunties would send my cousins and I to dance class with one of the other aunties. So we would just spend the afternoon learning to dance together. It all sounds very romantic, but actually, like now I talk to the cousins that I was learning dance with, we're all like, oh, I dreaded dance classes, actually. I just did it so I could hang out with my cousins. <laughs> but I mean, now we all know how to dance, so that's a plus, and we really appreciate that now. But at the time, it was like, oh, I just want to like run around with my cousins. That's so funny, but you guys love hanging out with each other because later on, you learned the safe together as well, like part of you were doing dance and part safe. How did that come about? Yeah, so I learned to dance when I was six and there was a bunch of us cousins. I think maybe around 15 to 20 cousins that were going to dance of different ages. When I was 11, I don't remember exactly when or how the conversation came about, but it was basically half of us decided that we wanted to play sape and the other half would dance. So then by playing sape, we could change up the rhythm. We could be more creative with our choreography. And at that time, there was only one CD album from Dusau Padan that we would dance to. We realized that, oh, actually, there's hardly anyone in our dad's generation that's playing. We didn't do it to save the sape or anything. We just wanted to learn music. But why the sape? I think you were also learning the guitar and the saxophone, right? So did you not think of bringing different instruments to provide that kind of background for your dance? Oh, no, we never thought about that, actually. <laughs> Yeah, I learned the guitar before I picked up the sape. And I guess having that background in guitar really helped me I'll pick up the sape a bit faster. Was it difficult to convince your teacher, I think it was like Matthew now, to teach you? Because sape is something that was only introduced to females in your father's generation, right? So it's quite new. Yes, Uncle Matthew, he's Kenya, which is one of the other tribes that is very close to ours. He married a lady just outside of Kuchu. So he lived about 30 minutes outside of the city. And yeah, we approached him and said, Uncle, will you teach us the sape? And only, I think, maybe six years ago when I was playing a show with him and an interviewer came to ask us questions, she asked a similar question to him and he said that 
after these young girls had approached him and asked if he would teach us a satbe, apparently he went home and thought very hard about it because in previous times, so in the pre-Christian times, it was taboo for women to even touch the satbe. And I think since the tribes and the communities became Christian, nobody really kind of questioned that taboo anymore. He went back and asked himself if he should do that. What would the people say? What would the community say? And he said to himself that nobody in that generation is playing. So he wants to teach us. So we were his first batch of students at that time. It was 2000. So maybe you could explain a little bit about the background of sape, which I found very fascinating as I was preparing for this, because there are two types of sape, as I understand, right? The spirit sape and the human sape. So what you're playing is the human one. Yes. Sape is a lute instrument from Malaysian Borneo and also Indonesian Borneo, and it's played by the Orang Ulu people. And these are people that live really in the heart of Borneo, in the rainforest, in the headwaters of rivers. And the sape, it's a stringed instrument made out of one piece of wood, and the back is hollow. And this instrument used to be used in ritual healing. So there are two sapes. The first one is sape bali. Bali means spirit. So the spirit sape, and the other one is the human sape. And right in the past, there was only the sape bali, and it was used for ritual healing. The legend goes that there was once a healer whose wife got very, very sick, and he couldn't heal her. So one day he fell asleep, and he had a dream. And in this dream, a woman told him to make this instrument. And once he's made that instrument and stringed it to play certain tunes, and his wife would be healed. So that's what he did when he woke up and his wife was healed. So ever since then, the sape was used for ritual healing to heal physical ailments and emotional ailments and spiritual ailments. And then in the 1930s, Christianity started to come into our areas and the tribes, most of them became evangelical Christians, some of them Catholic, and therefore the pre-Christian rituals were no longer relevant. And that included the Sape Bali. At that time, the human Sape was used more for entertaining, so for dancing, playing folk songs. I mean, I'm not sure why the human Sape also kind of died down in that period as well. That's got a really interesting history to it. Now the sape is quite different from what it was before. Back then, the spirit sape and the human sape, what was it that was actually different physically? So there's not much that we know exactly about the spirit sape because the elders don't want to talk about it anymore. I have seen one. It's different shape from the human sape or what we play today. It's a little bit more curved, like a vase shape and a smaller longer neck and it has two frets carved out of the neck so that means that you would have like three notes and it had two strings whereas the sape that we have today would have three or four strings it would be pentatonic so at least five notes is that so interesting you said the elders don't want to talk about back then the spirit sape so the taboo is still there the taboo is still there i mean still have elders that lived through the pre-christian times and From what I understand, it was a very difficult time because there was spirits of the jungle and all kinds of spirits and all kinds of omens. Like if they saw a certain bird flying a certain way across the path, all activity had to be stopped or there's other things I'm not even sure if I'm allowed to mention. (laughs) I can tell you off air. They just don't want to live those memories anymore. And they don't want us to go and explore those memories anymore. There are a few things in journals that we can read so I do a lot of reading of 
academic journal is also. That's so interesting. Why would they not want it to be shared? Is it because it's very sacred? I think for them, it's just for the very fact that it's against their current belief system. So it's not something that they want to bring to life anymore. So let's go back to the sape. So you picked it up and you learned from Uncle Matthew. Do you remember what your first lessons was like? I don't remember my first lesson, but we would always have the lessons at one of the cousins' houses. And they were informal lessons. They were organized in the sense like we had them every Saturday afternoon for such and such a fee, but they could run on for two hours, three hours. We were all of different abilities in the class. And... Obviously, we were his first students as well. He still passed on the songs and the traditions to us via oral traditions, so we didn't have any writing. I remember back then also, he had this like massive tape recorder. So he would record himself playing sape and make a tape for each of us to then go home and practice. Yeah. That's really, (laughs) really sweet. (laughs) It is. It is really sweet. I think I found one of his tapes the other day. And I was telling this to my first batch of students in about six years ago. And they said, teacher, you do the same to us, but it's just on WhatsApp. And I was like, oh, yeah. (laughs) It's a lot less laborious. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, because like as a musician, it boggles my mind that when you are learning an instrument, you don't have the actual note. So that's something that was never a part of the sape learning, right? No, never. And now also I do play with orchestras or modern contemporary bands. And I always say I don't read notes, which is not true because I do read notes, right? I play guitar, I play saxophone, I did the exams and everything. But when it comes to sape, I cannot brain like putting the notes to the way I play sape. So I just say, send it to me, I listen and I'll play Did you find it very hard to master the sape, given that you had a guitar background? Because the technique is quite different, right? I think you do the flicking, so it's a very different style. The technique is very different. I think I picked up quite fast. My cousin Emma and I, we picked up faster than the others. Emma also played guitar. But I think it's more, you understand how a string instrument works. Like, for example, you play violin, so you'd understand tuning, you'd understand fretting in a way like where to place your fingers it's like very precise it has to be at that position at that angle that pressure yeah yeah so that really helps I mean now I teach students with zero music background and I, I also have students that play guitar and they come in and sap it and in some ways I, uh, I feel like those with zero music background actually pick up the sap techniques better so after that like, did you have any thoughts in terms of what you were going to do with your life Or was the sape just something that you were doing because your cousins were doing it as well? Yeah, I mean, growing up, we couldn't say we wanted to be a professional sape player. Like, it wasn't a thing. Yeah. Uncle Matthew did it, but we also saw him like, yeah, that's Uncle Matthew. (laughs) (laughs) The exception. There was no woman that did it. There was no young person that did it. So yeah, I never, ever thought about it. I did have Rainforest Festival as a kid. So I would always just look at the musicians on stage and in the workshops and be so in awe of them and I remember telling my mom like oh I want to be them (laughs) so my mom actually took me to go and talk to some of the musicians and she said Lena asked them about their lives what they do she said you'll see that they're not all full-time musicians which is true like I remember some of them were like pharmacists I worked in an office teachers and and I was like oh okay but I really didn't put much thought to it I just thought it would be something that 
would be so awesome. I wanted to be a vet. I wanted to be interior designer. I wanted to be in advertising. I wanted to be a TV host, like anything except for a professional subject player. How did you transition from all that to deciding to go to Manchester to study business management? What was the thought process there? So after SPM, I went to the UK for A-levels and I really wanted to study art. I loved painting, but I wasn't very good at it. I just had the art classes at school. But because I arrived one term late in the UK, because they started in September and I arrived in January, so I couldn't catch up on a portfolio for art. So I never did art. Anyway, I did economics, math and something else. And then it came to applying to university and I still felt oh, I want to do art. I really love painting. And I just wasn't good enough to apply to the art schools in England. Like my dad was like, you're not applying to a school that requires three E's, Elena. You're, you're not doing that. Okay, that's fair. So then I was like, oh, what's like art? Advertising? I thought at the time. But also the advertising courses were like for lower grades. So then the advertising turned into marketing. So that's how I went to Manchester. I did marketing and management. First year of university, studied marketing and... I just didn't really roll with the ethics of marketing, mm. right? Like the tricks of how to sell people things. It's just not my character. So I dropped marketing and just, well, I'll just do the full-blown management course. So it's just a general management course. I was able to choose some interesting subjects. I remember I really enjoyed bridging the digital divide. So looking at rural areas and how to gain connectivity. And I wrote my thesis on exploring the social responsibility of logging firms in Borneo. Was identity something that you struggled with? I mean, for me, when I was growing up, I rarely saw anyone who was of an indigenous background, but you had Eurasian blood, but also were indigenous. So was that something you struggled with? <laughs> Double minority. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It was something that I struggled with. I think because I was so rooted in my collaborate heritage through music and through art, but at the same time, I would be treated differently like I wasn't from Malaysia, right? Until today, people are so shocked that I'm Malaysian. Like, oh. People in Malaysia are shocked that I'm Malaysian. They're like, oh, where are you from? I'm like, oh, I'm Malaysian. Are you sure? Are you sure? And people are so shocked that I speak Bahasa. Uh, so yeah, I still get that. So actually, I was really looking forward to leaving Kuching. I mean, number one, I think a lot of us were looking forward to leaving Kuching because it, it was a bit small. But also I was looking forward to going to England because that's where part of my heritage is from. And I was like, ah, oh, maybe finally I can fit in over there. But no, people in England thought I was Asian. I mean, I am. But they would call me Asian and wouldn't see me as British. Whereas people in Malaysia wouldn't see me as Malaysian. So yeah, it was quite hard, like my late teens and early 20s. But I think at the end of the day, I just found that I resonated with Malaysia or Sarawak most. So was that the reason why you decided to come back to Malaysia after you finished studies in the UK? Partially. So I got offered a job after university in KL. I moved to KL for that job. And that was the first time I lived in KL. And I think... You might resonate with me in that kale is another culture shock because completely different. I mean, not completely, but there are a lot of differences. Totally different. I think what made it harder for me is opposed to when I moved to London, it was so easy coming to KL because people see me as Malaysian that expect you to treat everything as normal, but it wasn't normal for me. I didn't know anything. It's like people see you as Malaysian, but you don't feel like you fit into the city because it's a totally different culture. They're like, let's yeah. go to Mama. What is a Mama? <laughs> yeah. 
But you don't have a mama? No, we don't. To this day, I still have people who don't believe that there is no mama in Kuching. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I moved to KL for a job in sustainability consulting. Uh, I also got put on other jobs like HR consulting or CSR consulting. But I just realized it wasn't really me. So after two years, how did you decide to move to Singapore and pursue an art degree in La Salle? Oh gosh, that was such a hard decision to make. Yeah. <laughs> and your parents. <laughs> But I remember my parents came over to KL and we went to Kinokuniya. My family loved books and we were in there for a long time, like an hour. And I went missing. I was upstairs, above the cashier upstairs is where all that art books are. So my mom and my brother came up and they found me and they're like, Elena, we're ready to go. And I was carrying like this stack of art books, like in my hand like this. I looked at them. I just started crying. My mom's like, why are you crying? And I remember saying, I just love art so much. That was one of the moments. But I didn't leave my job then. I think it was like maybe seven to eight months later. I had surgery underneath of my foot. And I was at home for a month. I got some like paints and I got canvas and I just started painting again. And honestly, like I wasn't a great painter. I just really enjoyed it. And it came to a point where I was like, oh, I really want to paint this person's portrait. Or I really want to paint, you know, something else, but I can't. Like I have it in my head, but I can't technically do it. And I just knew I wanted to learn. So yeah, it was after many months and I thought about it and thought about it. And I thought, if I leave my job now, do a one-year course, if it doesn't go well, I can go back into the workforce again. Like, I'm still young. I didn't have any dependents, luckily. So I did that. And what was the experience like doing art? It was great. I did a foundation course. So my course mates were fresh out of high school. So 17, 16 years old. And I think I was about 23 at the time. I really got along well with them. And we'd have like great conversations. And what I loved about the course at La Salle is that we did learn like technical drawing and stuff like that. But I learned more soft skills like observation, reasoning, critical thinking, observing society, Yeah, I learned all of those great things that I didn't learn at business school. And did you feel like, okay, this is it. I want to be a fine artist. I guess not quite. I knew I wanted to paint. I still do. I love painting. Painting is really my first love. I saw that it would be really, really difficult. Even just getting into the mind of an artist is so difficult. It's a big journey to go on. And if you ask me if it's something that I had dreamt of, yeah, but it was a scary dream. Were your teachers like, encouraging you to go into this art field or telling you <gasps> something else? They weren't. I was so shocked. Oh. Yeah, it was a foundation course. So after foundation, you usually go into a degree, diploma, or I could have gone into a master's, for example. So I was really kind of stuck, like, what is my next move? I wrote to my lecturers who I was very close with. They actually looked at my work. They look at your journals. They look at your drawings and your lines and everything. And they said, Elena, if you look at all your work, like it points back to your roots, your heritage, uh, Sarawak, um, your elders. And I was like, yeah, so that's who I am. And they're like, yeah, but we've never seen it so like strong at someone in foundation course. And actually they said to me, as an artist, you have to be a very selfish person, but you are not selfish. You're doing everything for your community. Even when you like journal about it, it's for your community. And I was like, huh? I really didn't understand And um, they said, why don't you just do your thing in a year? We'll see what you want to do. 
<laughs> and I was like, oh, I've already done a degree and these courses are not cheap. So I was like, yeah, okay, I don't want to just jump into anything that I'm not completely sure of. Yeah, so I moved back to KL, not quite knowing what to do. And so what was next once you came back to KL? <sighs> Two of my ex-colleagues at the consulting firm, they actually were in a world music band. I'd met them at Rainforest Festival years ago, and then we somehow ended up in the same office by coincidence. So they were in a world music band. It's called Diplomats of Drum, right? Yeah, Diplomats of Drum. And they invited me on their US tour that year, like three, four months later. And at that time, actually, I didn't play Zappé. My close friends in Kale didn't really know that I played Zappé. It, it was at home. I just never thought about playing it in KL, I guess. But they knew because they'd seen me at the festival. So I said yes. I practiced really hard. And we went to the US at the end of 2014 for four weeks. And that was really, really fun. And at the same time, I had my dad asking me, what's next? What's your plan? And I was like, I don't know what my plan is. But just give me a while because I can feel this is the right thing. I feel so full and I feel so happy. I had no idea. I didn't even expect to play this up there. I think that US trip really opened my eyes to how interested people are of the sape, of these stories that we have. Many people have seen an instrument from India or a stringed instrument from Africa, for example, but they've never seen the sape. Some people never heard of Borneo, never even heard of Malaysia. Singing is quite a recent thing. Maybe 2016 I started singing. So was there any particular incident that happened on that tour that stood out for you? So many. In our set in Diplomats of Drum, as you can imagine by the band name, Diplomats of Drum, it's quite an upbeat band, right? And the song that I contribute the most to is Datun Julud. It's, it's one of our folk songs and it's with the band and kind of like the bass guitar and the drums. It becomes quite an emotional song, a bit warlike, like very samangat. It was almost after every other show, someone from the audience would come and say how touched they were by that song, some of them in tears. And I was like, wow, this music is really powerful. So, yeah, I think I just started seeing how touched people were and how much it impacted people, how much it impacted me as well. And I just kind of kept slowly, very slowly going. And gradually I started getting Bigger gigs and bigger gigs in Malaysia. Yeah, I've been doing this full-time since 2016. So I got back from the tour. I remember I had a quite big art project, painting project. I didn't push the sape at all. Like I, I posted some pictures on Facebook and Instagram, but I had like 300 followers or something at the time. I joined TFM because I did need a job. TFM is Teach for Malaysia. And I still very much have a heart for education. Because Teach for Malaysia, what they do is they reduce education inequity. So providing access for all students in Malaysia to have a good quality education. And I always think that if my father and his generation didn't go to school and have the opportunities of education, I wouldn't be where I am today. And a lot of my family still do not have access to education. So it's something that's still very, very close to my heart. And I had management skills. So yeah. So I joined Teach for Malaysia. I was supporting on strategy and really enjoyed it. And in the meanwhile, I think you also did this project with BJBJ Initiative in Gunting. Yes. 
But a painting project, that's the painting project that I mentioned earlier. I was working for Teach for Malaysia in the week, even in the evenings or at the weekends in my free time, I'd be painting. I had some commissions as well. I used to really, really, really enjoy when Mike seen in KL. It was a really supportive community that we open mics, you know, almost every night of the week. So you just go and play there? I would, but I would play guitar. Oh. Yeah, I play guitar and start singing a little bit, like singer-songwriter stuff. And I remember like once in a while, I'd bring my sape and I'd end it on the sape, play three songs on guitar and I'd be like, oh, by the way, this is a sape and start playing. I think it was from there that people started to listen to Sapit more. And I think at that time in Malaysia, with this whole like confusing One Malaysia campaign, people weren't really sure of like, hey, what is Sabah and Sarawak? Actually, we don't really know much about them. So people were craving for these stories from East Malaysia. Sapit gave them an opportunity to listen to some of those stories. And around the same time, you also founded a social enterprise, Art for Studio, now known as Kanik Studio. So how did that come about? Okay, well, to be honest, I was given the name social enterprise. I was just doing my thing. Okay. <laughs> there was a social enterprise wave at that time as well in, in Malaysia. I named it Art for just to always remind myself to use art for a positive cause. So it started with some disaster relief. So like selling paintings or doing commissions to fund like broken bridges or... I think that's at your kampong, right? You did a Facebook plea for it because the yeah. bridges collapsed. Yeah. And even to this day, it's just the one bridge that is rebuilt. The other bridges still haven't been rebuilt, unfortunately. Yeah, supporting mostly Penang kids through education. Art for Studio has kind of evolved across the years. And this year, we renamed it to Kanit Studio, focusing more on production, on art and music projects, basically anything that tells stories about heritage, anything that works towards making cultural heritage relevant, It's kind of very bespoke and ad hoc projects. But we still do ad hoc supporting kids through education, disaster relief and those kind of things. Was it very hard for you to launch it and run it, especially in the early days? Not really, because I didn't put much pressure on it. It was something that was there. Again, it's grown very organically. Even with my journey as a sape player has grown so organically as well. So it's not something that kind of put pressure on, had targets for. For what I do as a musician or as an artist, the challenging thing is that I don't really have a model to follow. I don't have exactly somebody who's done the same thing. I can say, oh, these are the steps I need to take. So the way I make choices and decisions, I talk a lot with my family, my cousins, my uncles, my aunties, and say, is this what we want for our community? How should we do it? How should we put things? Is this, you know, what's the next project we should do? Yeah, stuff like that. It's very organic. And it was very brave as well, because within one year, you decided to enter into music full-time in 2016. Was there a tipping point where you decided, I'm ready to enter into music and give it a go? It was just that I was getting a lot of gigs. And at the same time, my Teach for Malaysia contract was coming to an end. So it would either be renewed or finished. I was getting enough shows and enough gigs. And I had students at that time also. So financially, I felt like I could sustain myself. How was the conversation with your family when you told them that this is what I want to do? My parents, they've always been supportive, right? Because they were the ones that sent me for lessons <laughs> in the first place. <laughs> you asked for it. Back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> they have to be supportive. But I think, again, it's because it's not just the thing of like, oh, how do you make a living out of art and music? But it's also the thing of like, how do you make an, a living out of playing zappe? <laughs> 
Yeah. So they were always supportive, but I think nervous and worried for me. I think really probably only up until last year. So I think it's also that I've lived away from them for so long that they don't see the everyday things that I do. And as well, in chaos so different from Kuching and they don't see the media industry, they don't see the entertainment industry here. So I think they were very nervous and very worried. So what was the plan? Do you have one? Because you released your EP in the same year as well. So was that something that you knew you were going to do? No. (laughs) (laughs) When I say this is a very organic journey, it's very organic, right? So back in 2006, we had a cousin band called Kanid that played at Rainforest Music Festival. So that's when I met my cousin, Josh. He came in from KL to be the drummer, right? And after that, Josh went off to Berkeley to study music. So around 2016, he came back to KL. We met up and I remember having drinks with him and he just said, I want to produce you. And I was like, what does that mean? (laughs) He broke it down for me and I was like, oh, maybe, I'm not sure. When we would meet up, he would tell me, I guess, I want to produce you. So eventually I was like, okay, Josh, how much money do we need? Like, what do I need to do? What songs do I need? All this kind of stuff. And then, yeah, I just muddled along with it. And then I had an album. So do you mind sharing the thought process, what you just said, how much you need? How do you come up with an EP? What was that like? The songs that I've been playing that were put inside the EP, I've known them since 2000. So I've known them for 16 years. So it's not like I didn't have songs. We just mapped out the songs and I kind of really just trusted him and his vision to develop those songs. I remember though, there was in the song Liling, he did do a demo with the drum kit in and I was like, nah, I want this to be more traditional, something that can become a reference. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then we went into the studio and released it. I did an EP launch at Timber, this live venue, and it was so full. It was so full. I didn't realize how full it would be. Wow. You, were you yeah, not involved was, in the marketing? I was. I was hands-on with everything. I was hands-on with everything. I guess sometimes you send out invites and people don't really RSVP. I was really overwhelmed. And what happened after that? I think, were you going off on all these world festivals? Yeah, so I remember that time. I had two friends who were doing life coaching. They're older than me and wiser than me. (laughs) So I did life coaching both of them. One of them's more focused on my emotional well-being and the other life coach is more focused on like business and goal settings so with a life coach right they kind of sit you down and ask you hard questions that only you can answer and they give you the tools to answer it but again only you can answer and they ask very specific questions if you cannot answer i remember one of my answers to their question i want to travel and i want to play music and she said write that down write that down so i wrote it down i have a paper somewhere and yeah ever since then i have been traveling overseas to like big festivals, small festivals. I was actually very thankful because I was getting very tired of traveling. (laughs) Not tired of traveling. Actually, I was getting very tired, very exhausted in general. But sometimes I look back and I'm like, I don't know what it is. Like thoughts or desire or intention is a very powerful thing. I mean, honestly, I cannot bring like being this kid at Rainforest Festival, just wishing I could be this musician on stage. I didn't sing. I didn't play anything professionally. I didn't go to music school. And you know, suddenly like I can be playing at festivals in random places across the world. <laughs> really, I, I think I've been reflecting on that a lot this year and just thinking like, wow, how did all that happen? Were you ever plagued with imposter syndrome? Asking yourself, why me? Why here? No. I think I was always very certain that 
this is my path. Not to say my path is to be a professional soccer player traveling the world and all this stuff, but my path is to be somebody that carries our heritage right now or maybe in the last five years. The way of doing it was to play music and to play at these festivals overseas. I don't know if the next five years is, it will be in a different way, but I think I just have to stay very clear-headed to be sure of what I'm doing. When were you certain of that path? Was there a moment where you went, I am doing what I'm meant to be doing? I don't remember that exact moment, but I get that moment quite often when I'm on stage at a festival. I play on all kinds of stages, right? So I don't really get that feeling when I'm on a corporate stage. I get that feeling more when I'm on a stage where I can be completely who I want to be, where I can direct the show as much as I want to direct. So if it's my own production or at a festival, or uh, I've even had those moments playing in front of like 30 people in a community hall, for example. I think it's when I see how people react to the music, how people react to the stories. That's what I know. That's what I should be doing. So I noticed as well that you went to so many different festivals, like the Norway's Fjord Festival, which is the largest Scandinavian traditional music festival. And you also were at like the Paris Fashion Week. So like, how did all these really different opportunities come out? So Paris Fashion Week was actually with Stylo. Stylo is a Malaysian-based fashion agency. It was with a group of Malaysians in the fashion industry that were debuting in Paris. So one of the brands invited me to play for their Catwalk Live. And it was really nice. It was on a boat on the river. And the background was the sparkling Eiffel Tower. It was really nice. And then I organized some radio shows. So I played Zappé on radio in Paris. And after that, we went to Rotterdam and had a show there. And then, yeah, flew home. That's nice. That was one of my earlier trips, actually, 2016 or 2017. Fjord Festival in Norway. That's actually a very big festival in my industry. So my genre of music is called world music. And it has a very, very different industry as compared to rock music, pop music, classical music. So the world music industry or the network is actually quite small. And we have like specific types of marketing, specific types of managers, agents, festivals, labels. Yeah, so Fjord Festival is one at the top of the list. So it was really, really great to be there. It's like in this small village in Norway, in the fjords. Yeah, that was actually quite a moment as well. Not necessarily being on the stage at that festival, but... We were also shooting a documentary at the same time. And I sat by the river and played Sape. And I just felt like, oh, I don't even know how to describe the feeling. I felt like I had come one big circle sitting there by a river. I mean, usually I would be playing by another river in Borneo and by the river in the fjords in Norway. It was like, what am I doing here? Do you feel like you had to be overseas in order to promote your own culture music? Because I feel, at least from what I can observe, that world music, at least in this part of the world, isn't as maybe appreciated as maybe overseas, do you feel? There's a very weak world music industry in Southeast Asia. For world music, you need very specific managers, agents, labels, and, and I haven't been able to find one that suits me. And actually, when I was starting out on kind of being a professional sapphire player, very prominent lady in the arts in KL told me, get out of Malaysia. <laughs> yeah, I was so shocked. But she just said, get out of Malaysia, make your music sexy outside of Malaysia. Only the Malaysians will listen. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. You didn't resonate I mean, with that. Unfortunately, that's true. I didn't really understand what she was saying. I was like, oh, I can understand that, but I'm not sure if I believe it. That's not the reason why I went overseas. I mean, the reason why I want to play overseas is to expand the reach of our music and our stories. But I think having that overseas experience did kind of, I guess, draw attention to me back home as well. So you did you not feel the urge to stay overseas? Sometimes I think that if I was based in Amsterdam or Berlin or London, those are the world music hubs. I could grow a lot faster. But then I think about it as well. I've lived away from home for so long and lived in like different countries. And I always end up missing home. And my music and my stories are so closely rooted to home, to Sarawak, that I think it would just be too hard for me to be away. I think what's really magical about your music videos as well is that you really involve your family in it. Like they would be singing and they are dancing in it. So that's really special that you would go <laughs> to them and make them a part of your music. It is. It is really special. I mean, we released Midang Midang last year. I love that and song. Thank you. And yeah, I worked very closely with my cousin, Sarah. She directed... The music video and she styled it she choreographed it and for that music video in particular we wanted to make sure that every film department was led by orang ulu youth so even hair and makeup was by gabriel padan he's orang ulu as well and then the dancers but as well like we love working with people who are not family and not Sarawakians. <laughs> I always say i don't want to seem like i'm so exclusive i, I really don't but I find that my cousins have the same lived experience as me. They had the same challenges. We are the first generation to be born outside of the rainforest. So we have parents that were born in the rainforest and lived their life in the rainforest and like walked 10 days in the rainforest to get to school. And so growing up, we hear their stories and we have the same community values that they have. But at the same time, like we're city kids. Working with my cousins, we kind of understand the viewpoints. We have the same lived experiences and we're on the same page in terms of what we want to share and what we want to talk about. And the synergy is just amazing and it's so easy. Is it a challenge to get the elderly part of your family, like your tabu, to get involved in it? Because it must be something that is so bizarre, at least at the start, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love our elders so much. I went through a phase of painting elders because I just loved... Have you seen them? Yeah, I have. I mean, I love just the faces of so many lines and so much texture, like in that way... I <laughs> I love painting them but also I just love like meditating on their story and they've seen so much transition in their lives they lived through like pre-Christian times they've lived through having roads enter the village they've seen the missionaries come they've seen schools enter they've seen money enter oh gosh they've, they've seen electricity enter and phones like They've lived through so much transition and change. I'm always so in awe of them. So I think when like you have these city kids coming back to the kampong, there's nothing big or anything. I think they find us a little bit amusing. Aww. Like we shot Midang Midang music video in Barrio, right? In the village. And half of the, the boats, the grandmothers, they didn't know who I was because I was wearing so much makeup, right? Oh, yeah. They didn't recognize me until I spoke to them. And I was like, do you know who I am? <laughs> like why are your eyes so red <laughs> why are you sitting in a pond <laughs> what was it like being a part of small island big song because i think you brought the production team to your village as well right and they went and visited all kinds of people 
Yeah, Small Island Big Song is a project started by Tim and Babao, and they're telling the story of Austronesian heritage through music. So Austronesian heritage is, I think, more accurately, it's a language group. So it involves like the indigenous of Taiwan, Malaysia, Madagascar, Polynesia, Hawaii, Tahiti, Isa Island, and a lot of the Polynesian islands. And many of these groups, the theory is that we originated from Taiwan, and Actually, we are the biggest language group in the world, but not many people know that. I didn't even know about this Austronesian connection, and like even my bandmate in Easter Island, he didn't know about it. So it's been so amazing getting to know my bandmates, and sometimes we speak our own languages, and we're like, "You say that too? We use the same word." And then we're always like, "Oh, family!" And it's just I don't know. It's like finding long lost family, really. So yeah, Tim and Baba went to each of our kampongs. And they came to mine. Mine was one of their last stops, actually. So I played some songs for them. And then what their process is also is that they had, like, they had a tune from an artist in Easter Island, which they brought to Madagascar. The artist in Madagascar played over that song, and then they brought it to Indonesia. They had some drummers play over that song, and then they brought it to me, and I added into that song. It's like this musical family, I guess. Actually, a lot of my bigger tours was with that production. And it won the Britain Songlines Music Awards, right? Which is like, yeah, that was amazing. And I would love to talk about. So this is one thing that people ask me to ask you, which is the beats, which is very important to you, and it's always shown, right? Could you share with us why beats are so in- integral to you in your culture? Yeah, so beats were actually brought through trade. We didn't make beats, and these beats came through trade. A lot of them originate from Italy, Czech Republic, Africa, India, China. Every beat has a name, and the ladies and the aunties they know where the beats came from. They know the name of the beat. They know the value of the beat. And you'd have like these certain, like dark blue beads. Like one bead could be worth a buffalo. And we have our traditional beaded skull cap, topata, and the old old ones can fetch for like a lot of money. <laughs> They're really valuable, basically. So they were used as money. Could be used to trade items, trade food, and beat look good. Could be traded for a human life. So, for example, if you wanted to save someone, or if you wanted to buy someone as a slave, you would use that one bead, the look good bead. But why it's so important? In the past, the very essence of being was to gain lalud, to gain a spiritual height, and. How a man would gain that spiritual height is to do very well in hunting and to be very skilled in head hunting and in warfare, right? So that's feeding your family and protecting your community. Whilst women, they would have to be very skilled in planting rice and harvesting rice and owning beads and stringing beads. So the men and women had their very clear roles, and we can see that beads were very important from way back. But I think, like symbolically, it showed that you were well off and you could provide and protect the community, basically. In the past, nowadays they are still important, but I think that's more for tradition and culture. And I think that's something that you very consciously incorporate in your costume as well, right? When you go on stage. Everything has a story behind it, like my costumes, the beats that I wear. If you see a music video as well, everything has a story. Since we are recording this in 2020, I wonder how has COVID impacted you and what you're doing. I haven't been traveling. In February, my band and I went to 
Taiwan. We played a festival there. And then in end of Feb and March, I was in Panama for a festival. So I got my travel in. And if it wasn't for my best friend's wedding in March, which I left the festival early to come back for, I'll probably still be stuck in Panama. <laughs> so my mom's like, oh, you have to like really thank Lillian for her wedding. <laughs> it's weird. Honestly, it's been a very weird year. I mean, I'm very thankful that I've been fine. My family's been fine in all ways. So when lockdown happened, I was actually looking forward to having downtime. I hadn't had downtime since July the year before. So I was really looking forward to that. I was actually already booked to work part-time on a management consulting project related to Sarawak for this year. So that set me up quite well. And to be honest, like I've had quite a few online gigs, virtual events. I had one or two proper events with the audience. I'm actually really busy, actually. It was strange. I mean, one of those shows was at Damansara Performing Arts Centre. There had to be two empty seats in between each person. So it was sold out. But you know, when you look at the audience, it's like one fed full. And <laughs> but honestly, like the precious applause from a live audience, we were like, oh, <laughs> that sound. And where do you think the future is going to be for you? Oh, it's so hard to plan. So now I'm really focusing on completing my album, which I've, I actually started two years ago. I'm really excited to share with you guys because it's a new sound and we have a lot of influence from blues, from rock, from new metal, from pop. And I'm not sure if people say that full-blown festivals probably won't be back until 2023. I don't know. Who knows? I mean, I think when they say full-blown festivals, like ones where you can travel overseas and da da da, da I think in Malaysia, we will be having some festivals. I know Borneo Jazz and Rainforest Festival are being planned for for next year. I think I'm going to spend more time also doing research and documenting and learning. And is there anything that anyone listening now could help you to make your life better? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Let me get my list. <laughs> I say that there's three free ways that you can help an artist, especially in these corona times. The first one is just sharing their content on your social media, on your WhatsApp, just share the content. Listen to their songs on Spotify, iTunes. Like their Instagram posts. You can like their Instagram posts, but the algorithms keep changing. So now you have to save a post instead of liking it and commenting. Actually, social media, these likes and, you know, even the YouTube likes and stuff, they... They do mean a lot for us. Yeah, and they do translate into funds as well. And it's a free thing for you guys to do. Is there anything that you believe in that you feel not many people do? I mean, I don't know if most people don't believe in this, but I really believe in the power of intuition and feeling what is the right path for you. It's quite hard to rationalize. And I think not many people are as lucky as I am in the sense that they know what they want to do. Some people know what they want to do, but circumstance means that they can't do it. But I think if you really kind of dig deep and shut out the noise, you can really find what is it that you want to do and what you were born to do. And honestly, it seems scary to take the first step to make a change, to do what you want to do in your life. But if you feel like it's the right thing, just do it. Just take it step by step and just be very aware of your journey and the decisions that you have to make. They will become clear to you. It's complete like faith. 
that's it. <laughs> faith in your journey or faith in whatever it is you want to believe in. The journey that I'm on is very beautiful, but it's very, very hard. And it's hard to make decisions sometimes. And it's hard to know what is the right thing to do. But you just have to kind of trust your gut and listen and see the signs and go with it. Well, Elena, thank you so much for your time. I normally end all of my interviews with these questions. So the first one is, have you found your why? Yes, I have found my why. Honestly, this one's very hard to define because it's very wishy-washy. And I always say I make myself a vessel for my community and my heritage and my culture. And why I'm doing it is because that's what I'm meant to do. What kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? In terms of tangible things, I want to leave behind this whole like huge bucket of songs in native languages, songs and lyrics and visuals and like artwork. That's what I want to leave behind. And I want like future generations, doesn't matter what race you are, what ethnicity you are, to enjoy them and to use them as a reference. Is there anyone in particular in this world that has done it really well that you want to follow? Yes, there are. One of the artists that I really look up to is Fatumata Diawara. She's a Mali singer. And Calypso Rose. Oh my gosh, I shared a taxi with Calypso Rose from the festival to the airport in Czech Republic. She is such a queen. She's about 80 or 90. She's the queen of Calypso music and she completely revived Calypso music. And what do you think are the most important qualities a person should have to succeed in your field? You need hard work and you need to have a lot of grit. So just keep moving forward. There's going to be a lot of failures. There's going to be a lot of challenges. So having grit and with that also staying focused and also just to be smart, educate yourself in law, in business. I think those are really important assets for an artist or musician. And where can people go to find you and support what you're doing? I'm on Instagram a lot. So that's Elena Morang on Instagram. My website as well, elenamorang.com and on Facebook. And I will add all the links to that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Elena, for your time. Thank you. And that was the end of episode 22. The show notes can be found at sothismywide.com forward slash 22, which includes the transcript and links to everything we just talked about. If you want to hang out, we also have a private Facebook group to keep the conversation going. And some of our podcast guests will also be showing up for a limited time to answer any of your burning questions. To join, just head over to Facebook and look for So This Is My Why. And stay tuned for episode 23, which drops next Sunday, because we'll be meeting an incredible Malaysian female co-founder of a global consortium of over 80 venture funds that have pledged over 1 billion US dollars to help female-founded companies. Her two passions, female empowerment and VCs, and her inspiring story is one I can't wait to share with you next Sunday. See you then.